Welcome to you all today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is poet Robin Cost Lewis, the poet laureate of Los Angeles and a writer in residence at the University of Southern California. Lewis is a Cave Canem Fellow and a Fellow of the Los Angeles Institute for the Humanities. She received her MFA in poetry from NYU, a Master's of Theological Studies in Sanskrit and Comparative Religious Literature from Harvard's Divinity School, and a PhD in Poetry and Visual Studies from USC. In 2015, she published her first collection, Voyage of the Sable Venus. It was widely praised by critics and honored with the 2015 National Book Award for Poetry. On November 16, 2017, Lewis gave a reading from Voyage of the Sable Venus as a guest of the Creative Writing Program. Thank you, Robin, for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, as my introduction suggests, you've had a varied journey to poetry. Can you tell us a bit about that journey, how you wound up as a poet? Sure. Um, well, I used to be a South Asianist, a professor who studied um, India mostly, ancient languages, and then taught contemporary literature. While I was doing that, I had a horrible accident, and I hurt my brain very badly. So I have permanent brain damage, but I'm highly functioning. Um, but while I was recovering, which took many, many years, um, my doctors forbade me to write or read. And for a person whose whole life is literature, that was a very, that was more difficult than the diagnosis of brain damage for me. And um, finally they gave in a little and they said, okay, well you can read a line a day and you can write one line per day. And so I would just be in my bed in traction thinking how to make this last the whole day, you know, set up to entertain myself, to set up a puzzle. And at some point I had this huge epiphany, like, oh my God, that's what poetry is. <laughs> you can put a whole essay into one line. And I never looked back. It was, the, it was the answer my life had been waiting for and I didn't know I was even looking. Yeah. Awesome story. Yeah. So tell us what sparked the project of the Voyage of the Sable Venus. Um, I just happened upon this image of, uh, from the 19th, I'm sorry, from the 18th century of a black woman inside of a clamshell like Botticelli's Venus, except the woman was black, which all, all of us know is a very rare thing to see a black female figure in the middle of a canvas. It just does not occur, especially in the colonial period um, in the Western art project. And so, of course, I was stunned. And then the more I, and it was beautiful. And the more I looked at it, uh, and she's attended by all these celestial figures and classical figures. And the more I looked at it, I realized that the Triton uh, character, instead of holding a trident, he's holding a flag of the Union Jack. And so it turns out to be a pro-slavery image. So in fact, the clamshell was a allegory for a slave ship and they're taking her to slavery. Um, and I was so compelled by the image, right, because there's this black woman and she's beautiful, but at the same time, it's pro-slavery, and I thought, well, that's exactly what it feels like for all of us, I think, to be American, right? That we have this promise of democracy and the fantasy of democracy, but a history that is abnormal in its heinousness. And, um, and so that was one thing. And then I thought, but God, what a sexy title. 
voyage of the sable Venus, right? Sable, darkness and beauty. And when had we ever heard sable and Venus together in one sentence or one anything? And so then I started to wonder about other titles, like what other titles that include black women's bodies, what are they like? And the next thing I knew, I just fell into this complete obsession that lasted for years about the titles of artwork. Could they tell the story, our story, humanity's story, and our relationship to race and gender? I thought it would be only three pages, but it turned out to be 79. Yeah, so this 79-page title poem in the center of the volume, you, you, you started doing this research. Mm -hmm. You thought, oh, it's going to be Western art. Mm -hmm wasn't just Western art. It is just Western art primarily. So I mean, far, broadly defined. How many years? 38,000. 38,000 years yes. of artworks that represent the black body, the black female That body. include the black, black female, female body. body. So if there was a figure, which there often is, off to the very utmost extreme edge of the painting, right, then I included that title. And also not only paintings. Oh, paintings objects, images, sculpture. And then what was really strange to me after I fell into the research and became deeply obsessed um, is that I began to discover things like razor blades and spoons and combs that had black women carved into, these are mostly from the ancient period, mm -hmm. colonial period as well, um, tripods of a stand for a bowl or a bidet. I mean, just black women painted on bidets, it's insane. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it, it taught me so much about the Western imagination. Like, what, what was that need about to have one's life, mostly one's white imaginative life, ornamented by the degradation of the black female body? It, it, it released me, too. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I felt incredibly free after I finished it because I felt like I was able to take the projection off of our history, African diaspora history, and put it back onto the Western Art Project. It's like, this is your imaginative process. It has nothing to do with us. And that was deeply liberating. So tell me, tell us how you translated this research into this central poem. Well, I thought, is it possible to take all of these titles and put them all together um, without breaking them up uh, into, to transform them into a very surreal ancient narrative of this history. And it turned out that it was possible. Mm -hmm. So I, I had, I don't know, maybe 300 pages, single space, nine point of titles. And I just worked for years and years and years, no particular order at that point, um, figuring out how to lift certain titles and put it next to another title to form a sentence or to form some kind of adjectival expression. Um, and it turns out it was quite easy, actually. Um, it just took obsession mm -hmm. and um, sitting very quietly. It felt like I understood finally what sculptors do mm -hmm. when they say that they can, you know, uh, Michelangelo said that he could see the David inside mm -hmm. of the stone. I could see this poem inside. I could see it in this big pile of texts that I had accumulated. It was once I finally sat down to do it, it was, I was obsessed. It was a beautiful obsession. Um, and it kind of just came to me like, yes, you can do this. That's so fascinating because yeah. you've talked about this poem as an epic poem. Yes. And you've just talked about it in the way that epic poetry, uh, epic poets talk about the creation of epic poems, right? Yeah. 
muse come and Absolutely. fill me. So why did it have to be an epic poem? It didn't have to be. I didn't know it was going to uh -huh. be. Um, I, I, again, I thought it was going to be three or four pages. And, you know, it turned out to be this, I don't know if I'll ever work that way again. A 79-page mm -hmm. poem, who would voluntarily do that? I wasn't. I wasn't. Epic, epic poets. <laughs> I wasn't um, planning on it to be a 79-page poem, you know. But I have an essay that I've written where I talk about after I after a while I started feeling like I was on board a ship, and that my captain was the sable Venus, the the woman in the etching, and she took me everywhere, every continent, every time period, every country, every medium, every everything, and and everywhere we went, there were these horrible images regardless. And so my research transformed from being research into an act of devotion. Mm -hmm. And I felt very deeply about that as mm -hmm. epic poets do. Mm -hmm. I felt that I had to serve the goddess in this way. My goddess, my sable Venus. And she asked me to do it, so you can't say no to a god. <laughs> of course not. Right? So before I ask you to read a, a bit, but sure. I just want to talk a little bit about the epigraph that appears on the title page of the central sure. poem. This is from the poet Reginald Shepard, and, yes. the, and the quote is, and never to forget beauty, however strange or difficult. Yes. And I should also say that, that, that the volume is dedicated to beauty. Yes. So say a little bit about that quotation and why that, that resonates for you, why it's so Sure, important. well before I do that, I'll say a little bit about the dedication. So yeah. the book is dedicated to beauty. And uh, I had a conversation with my editor because the font that they usually put it at, originally had put it in was very um, ornamented and mm. lovely mm. and I remember writing her and going no it has to be <laughs> bold and strong and dark and I think that that conversation really solidified for me or capsulizes what I feel about this so what my research taught me for the long poem is that uh, beauty more than any other quest of empire more than any other colonial, you know, put a pole down and claim this land is yours, that beauty is actually the most important, most significant territory that we have fought over as human beings. Mm -hmm. That the, the ideological territory is actually much more poignant and much more important than physical geography. Mm -hmm. um, who gets to be cherished? Who gets to be adorned? Right, and who and who attends them? That who attends that adored body, and that blew my mind. Once I, you know, art historians have talked about this forever, um, but they don't talk about it. They haven't, especially in, in long, um, for long periods of time, for long centuries, they don't talk about it directly. It's always just a given that the brown black body is degraded, right? And then now you have this fantastic research being done by art historians who do um, look at the history of, you know, black arts, black imagination, and all of that. Um, but no one's really talking about beauty as this territory that we fight over, not directly. Mm -hmm. And so, um, for me, you know, in a lot of the research I've done on the ancient world, the beauty is a goddess. And she's not a god. She's not a goddess that, by that, when you say goddess, the problem with the ESS on the end of all of our words, that suffix, is that it feminizes it in a way, and in a patriarchal structure, that means it weakens it, mm -hmm. right? But a goddess in the ancient world is nothing to play with, right? She comes 
you know, with eight arms, every arm has a weapon, every weapon can kill you a thousand times over. And so my relationship with Sanskrit and other African and Creole mythologies, I knew that, like you don't mess around. And so um, for me then, beauty were all, was, it was all of those things and needed to be taken very, very seriously, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so Reginald Shepard's quote then was perfect because for me, beauty wasn't light, mm -hmm. it wasn't lacy, it wasn't pretty. Pretty and beauty to me are opposites, mm -hmm. you know? Pretty is a yes man, I say in this essay. Pretty is a, an agreement with, you know, the patriarchy. Beauty is a complete resistance to that. And so when I found that quote by Reginald Shepard, I thought, perfect, beauty is strange and it is very difficult. Mm. It's, it's, not a, it's not an easy category to engage, it's complicated. So, uh, strange, beautiful, complicated. Those are good things to ask you. Could you read something from the volume? <laughs> it's all strange and beautiful. <laughs> I mean, strange and, and complicated. complicated. I don't know if it's, it's beautiful. No, it's beautiful too. Um, sure. I think I'll read Felicite first. Right. Right. Um, Felicite, for your viewers who don't know, is uh, in French it means happiness. Felicite. Of all 300 species of hummingbirds, only one, the ruby-throated, crossed the Mississippi. Somehow this matters to me. They can hover in midair. They can fly backwards. They fly 500 miles straight through across the Gulf of Mexico without ever landing. Their mouths are hollow, burnished needles, bright, sharp flutes. They sip the nectar of cactus flowers. When Louisiana meant all the land from the Pacific to the Mississippi, a grandmother of mine once owned one of the largest plantations in all the territory. When Louisiana meant Spain, she'd been a slave. When Spain sold itself back, she's listed as the sole owner of a vast plantation, a plantation so large many property lines now form the boundaries of an entire county. Tonight, after 25 years, I realize I've spent my entire life avoiding any situation that might require me to say these words aloud. From that moment, I discovered her rotting inside a molding courthouse, her signature next to the plantation's inventory. I began to babble any words I can think of in four different languages, placing them in the most chaotic order possible in order not to say these words the black side of my family owned slaves. Or her signature, Marie Pani, femme de couleur libre, Marie Panis, free woman of color. Her lover was a famous judge from Sardinia. He took great pleasure in watching black women hanged inside the square to musical accompaniment. I read this about him once and tried to see her, brown, sleeping next to him, fucking him on her plantation on top of a pineapple bed, kissing behind his ears, sharing an alligator pear, strolling through her cane. Maybe at some point every hour, a part of me has wondered about her silently, though I did not think so until just now. Perhaps she is the answer to the sensation I have had for years that of another body hovering inside me, waiting for a dress. What can history possibly say? Sometimes I feel a pride I cannot defend or explain. Sometimes I smile. Into the barbed nectar of the story I have stared my whole life. Whenever someone tried to kiss me, I tucked her name under my tongue. 
If someone tried too long to hold me, I hit her between my legs. If they wanted to touch me there, I'd pull out her name and place the white bone under my pillow, hoping she would return, take it away, leave me a glistening quarter. To her son, Théodule, Marie Pani gave her favorite slave, a girl named Felicité. They were married. One of their children, Heloise, was my grandmother's great-great-grandmother. There is a picture I found of Heloise once, corseted in a studio, standing next to a waist-length pillar which held a verdant fern. But mostly, I have wondered, how does one name a slave happiness? Happiness had a twin sister, Francoise. I don't know what happened to her. Perhaps she is still out there, like us, her throat glistening a silent red. Or perhaps she is the only one who can still cross the river the only one still flying backwards over the Gulf without landing. Thank you for that. Sorry sure. for my interruption. It's okay. Oh. Um, this poem is one of the poems that comes, uh, it's the last poem in the volume, mm -hmm. I think. Comes, and and the, both the beginning and the end of the volume are a series of lyric poems that surround the central epic poem. Those poems are personal lyric poems. Tell us about the relationship in your mind between these two different kinds of poems that are in the volume, this central epic poem, which is impersonal in some ways, mm -hmm. and these much more lyrical, personal poems. You know, I don't know that I see a difference between them. I don't know if they're distinct. Uh, one, the, the central epic is about the kind of psychological terrain through art that we have traveled as a species, humanity. And then the lyrical poems are about, sure, they're, some of them are specifically autobiographical, um, but they all engage the fantasy of race and the fantasy of gender, mm -hmm. how, how much those categories are pathological and hurt all of us, I think. Um, not culture, right, but race, the idea that we, that there, you know, there's this great Buddhist slogan, there are no others, right? and. Yet we, in our culture, think that everyone and everything is an other. And so I think I, um, I, I can't, I pinched my tent in the former school. Mm -hmm. I don't really believe that there are any others. And, and so the lyrical poems that are autobiographical, um, I, I like the idea of using my first person point of view, the eye, you know, every eye is a dramatic eye, as we say in poetry, as a kind of historical experiment. I'm not really interested in my personal life being in print or in public mm -hmm. at all, mm -hmm. but I am very interested in how history has shaped that identity, right? How what I think might be my individual, I don't know, psyche is actually just you know, an expression of a historical moment mm -hmm. having its play mm -hmm. at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so for me, they're all the same, um, but formally, they're very different. So on the question of form, last night in the Q&A, you described yourself as a freak formalist. <laughs> so anyone reading the volume will see that you use many different poetic forms. Yes. Some of them are traditional, very yeah. traditional. You've yeah. got sonnets in there, yeah. and others are um, fixed forms that are your creation. Yes. So what, why are you a freak formalist? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, uh, language is delicious to me. And it's a 
beautiful historical landscape, right? Any language, archaeologically, you can, you know, through etymology, go into it and get lost forever. And so, formally, that is also true. What poetry can do with a line is profound. You know, where you end a line, where you don't end a line, where you allow white space to inhabit the page, where you don't. Um, it's all manipulation, you know. I'm trying to manipulate my readers to read poems in a certain way. Mm -hmm. I'm also trying to seduce my readers to stay with me. It's very important, you know. My readers are so important to me. I don't ever want them to feel um, handled poorly. And so I think about these things with regard to form. I want them to think about, I also think, I, you know, at my heart, my true vocation is I'm a teacher. Mm -hmm. I love teaching. Mm -hmm. And so you know, partly it's sure that I'm engaged in a formless obsession, sure, and I like that. Um, but also, I feel like my job as a poet is, there are many things I feel I should do, but one is to teach my readers mm -hmm. about things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yes, there's sonnets in there because I like to write them, but also because I want that form to continue always. It's a democratic form. Mm -hmm. People think about the sonnet as a very uptight, uh, form and it's true because it's been used horribly I'm sure all of us can remember being made to recite sonnets for those of us who went to school at a particular time um, or being told that, that that it has to be in that form in order to be a poem it was a horrible way that it was used colonially but um, historically it's a very democratic form you know and it's fantastic it's music who doesn't want to sing a song who doesn't I do always and so to figure out the puzzles of form to figure out you know, no, it can't have the stress there. It has to have this rhythm. It has to this and that, you know. That's a fantastic, and I hope it gives, you know, even regardless of what I'm talking about, however to remember beauty, however strange or difficult, right? If I can make difficult poems also beautiful, then the reader will stay, and I will stay too. I don't like writing about this heinous stuff, right? I have to give my mind something, some kind of relief. Mm -hmm. And I think I also want to give the reader a little bit of a you know, a bit of kiss on the cheek to say, I know this is hard, but trust me, we'll get through it together. And form helps me do that. Could you read another poem for us? Sure, how about I read that sonnet? Sure. Um, I think I'll read this one. It's about World War II, and it's about a photograph that I came across uh, when I was researching World War II. From two. At last, a dark, murderous lunatic to whom they are allowed to respond. Here, no one expects them to be strung up by their necks, dangled, and then left to be cut down from a tall tree and not cry. No law here will require them to watch their families hurled on top of the world's bright pyre over generations without complaint, unattended by rageous holiness or the clear mirror of grief. They find some chalk to celebrate, while one loads, one lifts, then checks. Just before they ignite the bomb, they write on its shell, from Harlem to Hitler, then stand back for the camera, smiling. Wonderful poem. Thank you. Um, tell Can us I about just say something yeah, about sure, that please, poem? Please do. Because I think it connects to our conversation. Yep. So there are this poem and others in my work are uh, research the segregated history of the United States Army. My father was a World War II vet. 
Um, there, what I, what interests me about that poem and that photograph upon which it is based is that you have these men smiling because they're about to kill people, right? They're about to kill, ignite a bomb and kill some Nazis, hopefully. Um, and so just that alone, before you get into the racial politics of the moment, mm -hmm. that they are smiling because they're about to kill something, that for me was such a complicated gesture, mm -hmm. right? But at the same time, when you think about African-American men serving in the army, that they finally can ignite something. They finally can fight back. After centuries of degradation, there is one white man in the world that they are allowed to kill, and that is Hitler. So they're overjoyed. And that, that's the complexity I'm talking about when we were speaking about beauty earlier. It's strange and it's difficult. It's not easy. It's a complexity that we can't look away from, mm -hmm. I think. So on the topic of looking away from yeah. and not being able to look away from, tell us about the cover image oh, on certainly. the value. So this gorgeous photograph is taken by the extraordinary writer Eudora Welty. Um, it was taken in 1932 in Mississippi and it's a part of a larger body of work that Eudora Welty has. She's an extraordinary photographer. I admire her photographic work as much as her writing. I also love her writing a great deal. Um, a lot of people don't know anymore that Eudora Welty is a, was an amazing photographer. Um, a lot of her subjects were African Americans in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And the, the sensitivity that she brings to her project is extraordinary. I mean, look at this photograph. It's very complex. You have a black woman who, you don't know this from the image, I know it from my research, she's a teacher. And she's looking through a window shop at lingerie. And so I like that you don't know that she's looking at lingerie, but I also know for sure that this has to be the first image of a black woman, a black female figure, looking at something as sexy as lingerie mm. um, and thinking about it, right? And she's mm -hmm. also portrayed as thinking. Another thing you never see black women doing mm -hmm. in Western art mm -hmm. is think, mm -hmm. right? We didn't have brains, so how are we gonna think? Right, three-fifths of a brain. So it's a complicated image for so many reasons, and I just adore it. Um, it was originally titled, Eudora Welty, always being class conscious, originally titled, Teachers Can't Get Paid. Really? Yes. Interesting. I know, because the way I think that Eudora Welty wants us to interpret that is that the, te the woman is looking and trying to figure out whether she can afford a nice pair of panties. Right, right. Um, hmm. But a French uh, curator changed the title to twice to Sunday morning and window shopping. Hmm. Yeah, but it's an excellent image. Fascinating. So we have like a minute left. Okay. So among many things, you are the Poet Laureate of L.A. I am. What does so that entail? Honored. What does it mean to be the Poet Laureate? Well, um, I don't know what it's supposed to entail. I'll tell you what I'm doing with it. I'm trying to transform whatever it's supposed to entail into it being an office of service. And I'm trying to... Uh, broaden our understanding of Los Angeles poetry and compile both through readings and through an anthology the history of the Los Angeles Basin, the poetic history of the Los Angeles Basin, which will, will, which will um, include works starting with indigenous populations that were there 10,000, 12,000 years ago, start there. 
right? And then move forward to the Pacific Rim histories, all the different Asian countries that came because of the Pac Rim, and then the migrational histories for the people coming from the east, out west, before, long before we get to the beats, right? A lot of people think about LA poetry and they only start with the beats, and that's fabulous. I'm a big Bob Kaufman fan, for example. But that history and that place is an extraordinary um, historical landing ground for so many uh, diverse forms. I was talking last night to Garrett Hongo. I want to do something about Samoan poetry, for example, because I grew up with a lot of Samoans in my neighborhood, things like that. So I want to widen what we think of as LA poetry. I want to redefine that. Well, Robin Costa-Lewis, thank you so much for taking thank the time you. to speak with us and to share your poetry. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure, too. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with poet Robin Costa-Lewis. She is the Poet Laureate of Los Angeles and a writer in residence at the University of Southern California. Her collection, Voyage of the Sable Venus, won the 2015 National Book Award for Poetry. On November 16, 2017, Lewis gave a reading from Voyage of the Sable Venus as a guest of the Creative Writing Program. Thanks so much for watching.